Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to Merix Experts. My name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich, and I'm the Director of Communications at Merix. The Belt and Road Initiative has forged a new spatio-economic connection between China and Europe. Since the first China-Europe freight train reached Duisburg in 2011 from Chongqing, the number of trains and routes have multiplied into diverse and frequent services. The trains carry containerized goods between Chinese cities and major European urban centers. But what kind of opportunities and challenges did the implementation of the China-Europe freight train phase and what local impact does it have? I want to discuss these questions and other aspects of China's reconnection to Europe via the BRI with my guest, the sociologist and urbanist Chen Xiangming. Xiangming is professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and he is also an adjunct professor in the School of Social Development and Public Policy at Fudan University in Shanghai and the Graduate School of the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences. Welcome, Xiangming. Well, thank you for having me. Xiangming, in May 2011, I said it already, the first rail route between China and Germany opened, connecting Chongqing and Duisburg and marking the start of the China-Europe freight train service. Would you characterize this as a turning point in global transportation history and globalization? I would say so. It's uh, potentially a, a very important uh, turn in the overall development between China-Europe relations. And it has added a new dimension and channel for creating additional opportunities uh, of trade, not only between China and Europe, but also across the countries between China and Europe. Um, back in 2007, when I first studied this first line a little bit, I didn't recognize that it would turn out to be uh, so much bigger uh, because it has uh, turned from one line to many, many lines. Last year in 2018, there were over 6,000 train runs uh, from China to Europe and back, uh, mostly from China to Europe, but increasingly we've seen uh, Europe. European countries have been sending more trains to carry European goods to the Chinese markets. What was the original idea behind this line from the Chinese side? It was interesting. In some ways, it was a very uh, local or localized uh, development. Uh, the then uh, mayor of Chongqing was interested in um, uh, attracting uh, new manufacturing investment to, to Chongqing, and it began to approach Hewlett-Packard to talk about creating a manufacturing facility to make uh, computers, laptops. And uh, so that led to the conversation of um, shipping or logistics. How do you get the uh, computers made in this factory in Chongqing, a new factory, to uh, ship to European markets or other park markets along the road? Uh, so it's a combination of, uh, we say, forward-looking local leadership uh, and close partnership with a major U.S. manufacturing company that have uh, opened up this uh, new uh, logistic markets that has becoming much uh, bigger. Is China gaining on Europe via this freight train line? 
Well, I would say I see potentially it's a really win-win situation. I think China's only uh, gaining Europe. I think it's not really accurate. I think China has, uh, in some ways, uh, helped itself uh, by opening uh, this uh, set of a train uh, routes uh, that also allow. Uh, European countries to obviously grow the China markets.、Uh, more European companies can take advantage and have taken advantage of、uh, this set of trains. As I said earlier in my talk, you know, more European countries are interested in、uh, join、uh, this opportunity. So I really see it as、um, uh, win-win. And maybe so far, you know, China has uh, acquired, uh, gained more benefits so far because there's more cities inside China. That are、um, uh, part of the train system now, but I see over time in the longer run, other countries、uh, in Europe and between China and Europe can potentially benefit from this as well. You described already a bit the development of the whole project, but could you be more concrete on one question? What are the most crucial hubs for this line, and what role is Xinjiang playing in this new transportation network? Wonderful question. You know, Xinjiang obviously is the crucial middle. I call it.、Uh, you know, it's、uh, obviously a large uh, connecting uh, territory、uh, between China, Central Asia, and, and Europe, and、uh, two very small. Border towns or cities in Xinjiang, Horgors and Alashanko, have become really the crucial logistic、uh, hubs that、um, connect、uh, the trains leaving from China and heading to Europe. and、uh, And the trains would have to be obviously、um, stopped at these two、um, particular、um, spots、uh, to adjust, you know, the the width of the train tracks. So I would say, and Xinjiang itself also、um, has already began to benefit from these more of these trains going through from Urumqi, which is the capital city of Xinjiang region, has also becoming、uh, a very important city. Along the China-Europe freight train, it's actually receiving more trains coming from interior China and sending them on to Europe.、Um, and also, Xinjiang is known for producing a lot of agricultural products, fresh fruits, and and other、uh, commodities, and can also、uh, and already has began to work more closely with neighboring Kazakhstan to ship these fresh fruits and agricultural products across the border through its、uh, small. But growing a logistic hub of Horgors, the city on the border between Xinjiang and Kazakhstan. You mentioned some products already, but what are the main goods transported in the cargo? You know, this is really interesting. I mean, you know, a few years ago, before this、uh, train system was、uh, regularized and、uh, become more efficient, and it was very difficult to ship, you know, the fresh fruits from Xinjiang to the markets in Almaty. And Kazakhstan, you know, because the mountain roads would not be very、uh, smooth, you know, sometimes can take up to almost two, three days. So by the time you know these fruits get there, you know, they're no longer be fresh. And now I think with much more efficient custom clearance, with more frequent trains carrying these fruits. Uh, other kinds of、um, uh, products to Almaty,、uh, and then the local residents living in Almaty,、uh, the old capital city in the commercial center of the country, now can get the, the fruits on a daily basis.、Uh, so that has facilitated better flows of、um, of consumption through the borders. Has actually allowed the the、uh, the local consumption and and local lifestyles to、uh, to improve.、Mm-hmm. 
What is your overall opinion on the China-Europe freight train service? Do you think these expensive investment will pay off in the long term? It will take a long time, uh, I think, for all the added cumulative upfront investment to really generate, you know, the kind of uh, financial returns. Because so far, even though the number of the trains, the more number of cities that involve in this real networks has been growing, but they've been growing mainly because of lots of local governments in China providing subsidies you know, for carrying all of these uh, large number of container boxes. Um, so it's an interlocal competitive game, if you will, uh, played inside China uh, to push this market to grow its opportunities. Uh, but in the longer run, for the entire set of these train routes, both between China and Europe and also other countries to participate, you know, will take a lot more uh, future demand uh, from uh, more private companies, more other um, actors to see the benefit of shipping it overland uh, across, you know, obviously vast distances, but still shorter distance than shipping it by sea all the way around to Europe. Uh, I think the key to the long run success of the China Europe freight train system is to have more companies, particularly large scale manufacturing companies, to see that they themselves can save money, reduce cost, mm -hmm. uh, transportation costs by shipping their parts, components, or finished products directly from their factories inside China to maybe their branch factories, subsidiaries, maybe in Eastern Europe, uh, and to uh, use the trains to uh, manage and their supply chain more efficiently. So would you say at the moment the connection between China and Europe via rail freight train is not uh, sustainable? You know, right now, I think it's still we're at the early stage. Uh, the development is only about seven, eight years old. Uh, and of course, the, the, uh, a lot of the uh, lines now depend on the currently available subsidies, which will be uh, phased out uh, in two, three years by 2022. At least that's so far been mandated by the central government of China. But so far in the short time that we have seen it grow, we have already seen a greater variety of tradable goods being carried uh, along these uh, train routes. For example, I, I mentioned the example of Volvo, bring China-made Volvos to Europe and then uh, ship back uh, the cars made in the Swedish factories uh, back to the interior cities of China, where there's actually growing demand for import European cars. Um, so those are examples that point into a more promising future, I would say, where we can see greater volume uh, of trade that will flow uh, along these train routes and a greater variety of, of trains and more users uh, that will be participating in these opportunities that are more direct uh, and lower cost uh, 
uh, I think this is something that uh, wasn't fully anticipated. I think when China first opened up to the world using its coastal cities and seaports, but now I think we're seeing this is becoming a very significant turnaround to rebalance uh, the internal regional uh, differences between China and in the long run may help mitigate and narrow some of the enlarged inequalities between the cities in the coastal region versus the interior. So given the fact that the subsidies will phase out, how confident or skeptical you are that this whole idea will survive and be sustainable? I would say I have maybe what I would call guarded optimism <clears throat> because so far I've seen a very strong momentum uh, of the growth from you know nothing to a uh, pretty substantial um, uh, level already. And I see a lot of um, desire, a lot of interest on the part of many local governments to um, uh, invest in this uh, project. And also I think more promising Uh, sign is that uh, more of these manufacturing companies, both inside China and around China, like Japanese companies and Korean companies and other European companies, both from you know the manufacturing side and from the transportation side, see this as an emerging opportunity. And they're studying it. They're analyzing, you know, they're looking at the pros and cons. But I think overall, given the much longer distance and that it will take to ship some of these products by sea, especially for some of the energy shipping that it would have to go through a very narrow strait of Malacca in Southeast Asia, I think China is looking at the uh, China-Europe frame train overland is a very strong alternative to um, its dependence on the marine time shaping, especially for some of the very crucial uh, products like energy, oil, gas. This is Merrick's Experts. You are listening to Merrick's Experts. I'm talking to Professor Chen Xiangming from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut on the China-Europe freight train and the future of international logistics and supply chains. Xiangming, uh, let's turn again to these, yeah, expansion of China-Europe rail trade volumes. Which share of overall trade can rail gain in the long run? What is your assessment? Well, I think that's really the big uh, question for the future for a project of this scale. So far, you know, these trains only carry about one or two percent of the China-Europe trade, uh, both you know one percent in in volume. 2% in monetary value. So it's very, very uh, small and insignificant. And I think that's why I see, you know, the upside is great. Um, a lot of room, you know, for, for, for growth. And then if, you know, the first few years uh, is any evidence that uh, they can grow and will grow, I think the next few years will look pretty good for it to uh, gain some percentages in terms of the overall trade. But I think it will never rise to the level to compete with the mass volumes of trade by sea. Uh, it's just simply not economical enough to compete with uh, ocean shipping, you know, for the majority of the traded goods uh, that, you know, are not maybe time sensitive. Maybe that's not really high value added where you have to get it to deliver, you know, to the uh, to the end users or consumers uh, very quickly. 
So what kind of products could be part of the cargo freight in future who are not at the moment? Yeah, I would say I think, you know, cars uh, increasingly will probably be, um, you know, the most likely uh, item. And we have already seen, you know, companies like Volvo and, and others uh, have used uh, a, a larger um, uh, amount of this train shipping. And I will also see the great potential for a lot more agricultural products, food items, because uh, the technology is already there to be able to control the class the temperature of these wagons and then you could remote control uh, and tracking these products and you can also for some of the items you can pack a lot into a container box to to ship along the lines uh, the train lines and also I think in terms of delivering these kinds of consumer goods to the end consumers much more quickly in season so uh, I think that's an advantage uh, that these train uh, shipping routes have over sea shipping. According to you, what are the main problems for further expansion of China-Europe trade volumes? Well, the future, I think, uh, lies in, um, you know, more balanced trade. Uh, in other words, that uh, if the trains can help Euro more European companies to export more to China to reduce the current uh, trade uh, imbalance, Uh, because I think the, the imbalance is pretty large in China's favor. Uh, I said there's a lot more interest opportunity, you know, uh, on the part of European companies to uh, uh, sell more of their products to China. Many of these companies already, you know, using China as a major manufacturing uh, base and also markets. Volvo is a good example. You know, I think it uh, sees the future that it would like to export more cars from China to other markets. And I think the European companies that are based in Europe uh, don't have uh, manufacturing facilities in China uh, can look at these trains as an option of carrying, you know, some of their products uh, directly to China without necessarily having to incur the large cost of making these things in China. Where would infrastructure investments be needed? Well, I think a lot of that will have to come from other countries uh, outside of China. I think China has been certainly willing and um, um, very committed to put up a lot of the infrastructure investment up front. I th I'd worry less about China being able to do that than countries like Poland or Belarus or uh, countries along the way or along many of these, uh, uh, you know, the northern, the central, the southern routes. Some of these countries obviously have limited investment capital um, uh, domestically, and they may have to work with China to potentially attract uh, more of the financing or joint financing in order to target certain kinds of um, stations or cities that will be part uh, or crucial parts or an extension from these rain lines. So, uh, so that also raises a challenge for China to look at the overall BRI initiative and thinking more strategically about the China-Europe freight train system is a major integral component of that. And then maybe adjust the financing uh, and partnerships with other countries to make that even more of an important part of the BRI. How crucial is the success of the uh, China-Europe rail project for the whole BRI strategy? I would say so far has already illustrated and demonstrated uh, the contribution 
to the overall um, development of BRI, but it's still so limited as we're seeing in percentage of, of uh, trade. So that means that uh, it has a great, um, you know, future opportunities to uh, to do better. Um, and I think uh, so much of the BRI is oriented towards uh, Central Asia, Eurasia, and Europe, or overland connection, even though there's also the Maritime Silk Road. I think the balancing between the sea and the land transportation is uh, is critical because many of the countries that can benefit from the China uh, freight train are landlocked countries. And uh, so the trains allow these landlocked countries to potentially develop access to sea or more connections to other countries that otherwise would not be there. I think that's very important to keep in mind is how the China Europe freight train system can help, especially the landlocked countries in Central Asia to benefit from greater trade. One issue we haven't talked about yet are the empty trains coming back from Europe to China. What is the reason for it? Well, it's uh, an overall imbalance, you know, I think between the two trading partners, um, China sells a lot more to Europe uh, than the, the other way around. And so in the early years of the China freight train, you'll know, say between 2011 to maybe around 2015, uh, there were a few trains uh, coming back from Europe. The ones who did come back or the eastbound trains were either partially full or largely empty. But I think that began to change uh, quite a bit uh, in the last two, three years. I think in 2017, 2018 in particular, I think we saw a bit of a surge uh, in the number of uh, uh, trains coming from Europe to China. And I think in 2018, the reported numbers overall uh, percentage was 40 some percent of the total number of trains in both directions were eastbound. In other words, that they left Europe and finished in China. So that was a pretty uh, significant improvement. Uh, but it may or may not, you know, last um, uh, sustainably. But if that's uh, at least a one year, it's not yet a trend, but it's pointing to potentially a rebalancing uh, overall between the two sides. And I think the trains are perhaps helping now. Xiangming, you are also an urbanist and look on the consequences of these whole projects for urbanization in China and other areas of this whole route between China and Europe. Can you talk about a case example of a city? How and which investment has it seen? How has its integration into relevant supply chains changed? And maybe you could give us just an example of one city on the one and on the other side of the connection. Well, I would mention uh, the city of Xi'an, or historically known as Chang'an. Uh, it's uh, the eastern end of the Asian Silk Road, a city over 2,000 years old. You know, since, I would say, uh, 1980, uh, when China began to open up, you know, it was heavily oriented to what the coastal cities, all the large cities, including Xi'an in central and western China, were relatively neglected. I wouldn't say completely left out. Um, so over the last few years, cities like Xi'an or including other cities in central China have really uh, stood out as uh, catching up cities. And I think the China Euphrain train is a major driver of these cities building up their logistic functions, which in turn stimulated 
other opportunities such as manufacturing, investment, uh, e-commerce, and other kinds of uh, inward investment. So uh, Xi'an, I think, has done very well uh, together with Wuhan, Zhengzhou, Chengdu, and Chongqing. On the other end, in the western end of the China Euro freight train, I would uh, again point out the German city. Since we're in Germany, uh, a city of Duisburg that uh, not only just received the very first train and marked the beginning of the development, but has also really over time benefited a lot uh, from the growing number of the trains that have reached its territory, which allows it to obviously invest more into its overall port facility, intermodal transportation, as the largest. Inland uh, and also uh, river port, it certainly has location advantages of being an anchor uh, for this system, and it has uh, capitalized on that. I think the local government, the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, have really uh, taken this uh, as a very special opportunity to help the city to revive, if we will, renew itself from the long relative decline of being a heavy old steel making center in the rural region. So that's a very important uh, change, you know, for the early historically important important uh, manufacturing cities to use a different kind of economic driver or activity. To develop uh, new opportunities for its growth and development, that in turn will benefit obviously local population in terms of jobs and tax revenues. I don't know if you have had the opportunity to explore this question, but would you say that this connection also changed the attitudes of people, for example, in Duisburg towards China, towards globalization and the consequences of it? It's actually a wonderful question. Actually, I, I thought about it and I have uh, read about it. Uh, if you look actually the broader impact beyond just the the narrow economic activity connections, and uh, you see a growing interest uh, in uh, in cultural understanding of China, in teaching Chinese in the schools, and I think in the high schools, the middle schools in Duisburg, I think there's more language classes offered to teach kids.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Mandarin, and I've read、uh, one article、uh, which quoted a middle school teacher who talks about the future being having better understanding of China to her pupils, and so that's a very nice sort of follow-up, accompanying kind of、uh, development. I think that in the longer run. Prasp can do even more to help improve the mutual understanding between two people, not just you know. Business partners, a broader understanding of the cultural differences between the two countries or between multiple countries that are now part of a much more connected and integrated economic system. I would like to talk about some aspects I found in your publications in the Cambridge Journal of、mm-hmm. Regions, Economy, and Society you published last year. In one of your recent articles, you argued that economic globalization cannot coexist with both democratic politics and national sovereignty. One of which must be sacrificed for pursuing globalization. What is implied by this? Well, you know that's an argument I quoted、uh, Dennis、uh, Roderick, is a Harvard、uh, University economist, and he sees this dilemma. But I think you know, to it's a very complex theoretical、uh, issue. But I would say when it comes to China, sort of using or、uh, BRI to promote a different kind of globalization, 
we really need to see the potential coexistence, the compatibility that uh, different kind of political institutions or different systems can also contribute or um, uh, in in um, shaping globalization. Uh, they do it differently. Uh, and I think China does it with much stronger state and leading a lot of these efforts, but also organizing cooperation, you know, with the private market. So I think the implication of that uh, uh, reference, I think for China is for more people to recognize that uh, the reality is already dawning on us, that China is a major player uh, in in globalization and certainly in the in the different kind of different era of globalization that we're seeing emerging, in light what's happening in Europe in the, in in the U.S. you know with Brexit with you know uh, with Trump, so that's why we need to understand China's role. Uh, and its approach to globalization much better. And I think the BRI, the China Euro Freight Train System, provide, given us the lenses, uh, maybe the longer term lenses, both looking back into the past and thinking about the old Silk Road, but also looking forward through the current developments so that we can see potentially there may be a different kind of globalization that could emerge uh, through this long process of adjusting and the world system, you know, becoming a different kind of a system with different players playing different kinds of roles. So it's really still fundamentally a multipolar system. Uh, and I think China is one of the major players, not the only one, but it's uh, capable of playing a different kind of role through the kind of mechanisms like building up the train system that previously had not been imagined. And would you say when you have to decide, can China deliver more benefits from its approach to globalization in comparison to other? Well, China certainly is uh, aiming to, to deliver more, not so much perhaps to the more advanced industrial economies, but more to the developing countries, the so-called global south. I think a very strong motivating uh, force behind BRI is to foster Uh, what generally is called South-South cooperation. I think China sees itself as very much, you know, the global South, even though there may be disputes about whether China is still a developing country. I think if you look at uh, China regionally, uh, certainly this, the Western part of China, I would say is very much uh, part of the developing country in terms of uh, income and, and level of development. And that's why I think the China-Europe freight train system further highlights you know, China's internal diversity and complexity and unevenness. Um, and so if China can use or, or, or uh, uh, employ this policy to rebalance its own regional inequalities as a result of the earlier policies that favor the coastal cities, perhaps that's a lesson uh, for other developing countries to think about, you know, the kind of a sequence of development, the kind of policies that you introduce at the beginning and the middle of the later stages, and perhaps to avoid some of the, um, the pitfalls that have developed, whether they're intended or unintended, consequences of this kind of uh, geographically targeted development. I think China is aiming to uh, work more, I think, with the developing world and, and most of the BRI countries that are involved or officially or unofficially, more completely or partially, are really parts of the developing world. And I think that bodes well. Xiangming, so, mean, one 
last question. You told me in the beginning that you started in 2007 to explore this whole China-Europe freight train. Is there certain love for trains behind it or was it just more a kind of strategic decision to focus on that question? Very interesting question. You know, I think it's a, a it really points to a, a kind of what I see a bit of a irony um, in this, right? Because we're, we're in the 21st century now, but we're looking back to this transportation technology that was really developed, uh, invented, developed, perfected, mostly by, you know, European countries in, in the, during the Industrial Revolution or following the Industrial Revolution and certainly in the 19th century. And then we have also seen the trains played a very important role in the development of the American West. The trains that, you know, connecting the East Coast cities, the so-called gateway cities, and developing, moving west in terms of new territorial development and the growth of the new cities, you know, some of the mining towns or manufacturing centers. And now we're seeing maybe an older, more traditional form of technology coming back to serve the development needs of 21st century, using, taking advantage of a variety of technological advances associated with uh, faster, better, more efficient train services, you know, satellite control. We're talking about climate control for the trains to carry certain kinds of perishable goods. And we're seeing also more efficient uh, e-commerce introduction that can help, you know, the uh, uh, consumers in different cities to, to place their order even before the trains leave Europe, go back to China. We have JD.com, Alibaba, for example, is another company or a giant, an e-commerce giant in China that has built uh, distribution centers in Belgium, for example, so that will uh, allow people to order uh, things online, uh, knowing the trains will arrive on time. 15 days, 16 days, much more reliable than maybe the ocean shipping. So I would say the technological advances have really revived and improved a older form of transportation to be more compatible with the economies of the 21st century, whether they're traditional manufacturing economies or even the new economies that build around e-commerce, uh, other kinds of uh, uh, internet, A-date, trade transactions. So I see really this is a more integration, a convergence of a positive kind. I think that will benefit uh, you know, more countries and cities and local communities and people who are now, they know that this is something that they can count on and that's uh, doing a lot more, um, doing a lot better than maybe the, the trains, the slow trains that I remember growing up in China that would take, you know, days uh, to get from one city to another. And now uh, I know there's much faster ways of transporting goods, people and services using the trains, not only inside China, but between China over long distance to Europe. Thank you, Xiangming. There were fascinating insights you provided today. Thank you for joining Merix today and for having you here at our podcast. I talked to Chen Xiangming on the China-Europe rail connection and its implications for international trade. Thanks for joining. My name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich. You have been listening to Merix Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merix.org.